The Big Small Business Show is brought to you by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Transform the future of your business. Partner with the CASA today. And the courage to grow is business. MTN Business, a new world of business. Hello and welcome to the Big Small Business Show. Thanks for spending your time with us today. On our menu for today, we have our regular panel discussion. And today we have somebody who's been on the show in 2012, I think it was, or 2013. It's Haley Evans and Orly Shapiro from Pop Art, where we gave advice some many years ago. You'll see in the, in the insert how very young we looked at that time. And we're going to see what they've done with that advice and where they are today and what additional advice they need in their journey as an entrepreneur. Our Psyche of Success uh, interview today is with Dean Carlson from uh, Brain Farm. This is part one of a two-part series. We're going to talk about the journey of, I uh, saw so the journey of the humble entrepreneur. A, re- a, a wonderful story of a very humble uh, beginnings and, and uh, somebody who's remained humble throughout his journey and, and you know, rubbed shoulders with some of the most uh, influential celebrities in the world. And uh, when you meet him, you wouldn't say, say that at all. Our expert slot today is uh, with Julius Mojapello from Saika, and we're talking about something I do not like talking about, but I thought let's, uh, let us let us at least give good advice, and that is uh, on tenders. We don't like you to be going out for tenders, but if you are, at least today you'll get some good advice on uh, how to do, do that properly. On the show, we support entrepreneurs through their entrepreneurial journey, and uh, this particular section is the panel discussion where we assist entrepreneurs with particular issues that they might be experiencing in their entrepreneurial journey right now. With me is uh, our regular uh, gurus, uh, or are our regular gurus. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Kumaran. How are you, Kumaran? Very well. You good? No, it's not true. He's actually got man flu, and he's sitting here in the studio, bringing his pro- massive brain power to you. And I'm and not being pampered. You're not being pampered. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, would you like to be pampered too? This I'm is okay. uh, Mona Lisa, <laughs> our marketing guru, and uh, she'll be assisting us with um, marketing insights for our guests. Our guests today in studio are Haley Evans and Orly Shapiro, who are co-founders of Pop Art. This company offers a space where people of the performing arts come together to network and share ideas during the day, and at night they offer production services supporting live entertainment in the theater. Now Haley and Orly joined us in 2013, so let's have a look and see what's happened since we last met them. Pop Art is an independent Johannesburg-based theater production company and performing arts center. Established in 2011 by two young unemployed actors, Haley Evans and Orly Shapiro, They wanted to provide a platform for the showcasing of some of the freshest work and ideas from the emerging and established performing arts talent in Johannesburg. Both Haley and Orly joined the Big Small Business Show program in 2013 with hopes on getting expert advice on how to propel their business further, in which, to their surprise, the panel absolutely stunned them with the feedback. We just got grilled 
And the most, um, the most hectic part of it was the guys looking at our numbers and saying, you are not, this is not a business. It's a hobby. And we're like, no, it's a business. Like we're entrepreneurs. And they were like, yes, but you don't pay yourselves. And like went, but the, the key issue was that we weren't paying ourselves and therefore it was a hobby. Um, and that was one, something that we took forward very quickly was we were like, yes, okay, this is now, if we're going to take it seriously, that's what needs to happen. And I was obviously working another job, as was Orly. Um, and it was a very key moment for me to decide that I needed to give up that other job and focus full time. The business has been in operation for six years, making various structural changes but it has doubled its gross profits and employees since participating in the program. I think the one reason I'm working here like that stands out beyond everything else is the fact that I get to work with and meet like insane people that you would normally never get any contact with. I kind of like the fact that we, we have a small space and a nice and intimate theater. It's, it's got something very special to it. So if we do grow it, it, I feel that we should keep that, that small, intimate, personal touch, whichever way we do grow. If, if, if that is another theater or another space um, run by the whole team of pop art. Business principles from the time we started to, the, to where we are now are, I'd like to say the ethos of the business and why we started the business is the same. And like I said, we, we don't ever want to uh, sacrifice that ethos for um, making money. <laughs> Which, but we, I think what's changed a lot more is we came from this like very um, loose idea around what that is into going like, we want to create a sustainable platform for the arts. Haley and Orly have grown the business to bigger heights over the years, but do face challenges of balancing administration, strategic work, and wanting to also focus on the creative side. They seek to see the brand of their business grow on a global scale and also finding ways to access patronage. Art is typically a funded thing. In this country, we're really struggling with that. We're really, there's not a lot of funding money available, but there is money. And this idea of patronage is something that kind of happens a lot internationally. And I'd like to see what, how, how do we access that here? You heard that Haley would like to secure funding for the business, but she also gave us another short-term goal off camera. And this is to create a space whereby workshops can be hosted with the aim of unifying different disciplines in the performing arts industry and get them to collaborate. Welcome back ladies. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. Alright, so it's been five years um, it's since we, we last, is it 2013? Four, four years. years. Four years. You see my math's not so good, that's why I got the <laughs> maths guru right here. And since then you went from short hair to long hair and you went from uh, long hair to short hair I, and know. I went from no beard to beard. And grey. And uh, <laughs> you went grey. And we got you. You're right, yeah. All right, so, so let me k get a couple of clarifying questions here. So you're still in the same space you were uh, since then? Correct. Yeah, right. And, and it seems like it's going well. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, well, doing yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> right. And you both full time now? Uh, no. Yeah, no. I still yeah. do 
uh, run another business as well. Okay, you still got the other business, but, but I'm full time. You full time now. Yeah. Okay, and are you being paid now? Yay! <laughs> yes. Are you being paid? I am being paid. Okay. Yeah. Are you being paid commensurate with uh, the relative effort? Yes, I believe so. Okay. We'll always be nice to have a bit more for also okay. the love of the sweat equity from where previous years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Kamara's asking where is the space? Where are you based? In Mabonang Precinct. And so you got a full time rental, <coughs> you have to pay that? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yeah. And just explain the revenue model. That's the part clarifying thing I know. Okay. So okay. you got a space, you're playing the rental. Yeah. And where does okay. your income How okay, do you so charge in one? We're uh, a theatre and we rent. Um, in Maboneng and so the theatre is, is ours and what we do is on a weekly basis we have a new production in-house. So we're engaging with multiple artists from all over the country and we have a really high turnover of productions because we're not doing long runs. So the business model that we've chosen is to do a door split with the productions that come and we enter into a partnership for that week. So as opposed to a production coming and taking a risk and, and paying a venue X amount of money for a theatre, we are, we are joining up in a partnership and it's a co-marketing venture and so it's up to everybody's best interest to really market the production that's on for that week. And the hard cost like electricity etc is ours. It's yours. Yeah. Everything's okay. ours. You so split I the mean, door but what about the booze and the chows? Well we don't, well, we don't do food. food but yeah we keep the bar. The, the important thing to note kind of within the larger business model is the theatre is a very very small part of the revenue that comes uh -huh. in so we have multiple revenue streams outside of general ticket sales. Yeah. The ticket sales and the theatre itself is like a brand and then we've grown the brand. Our choice has been to grow that brand and then trade off on other things. So like? be that technical services or corporate gigs where we use um, theatrical training or mm -hmm. skills to go into corporates and do team buildings or um, kind personal of development. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So but a, the, a large part of our income still comes from the ticket what sales. Percent, what percentage? I would say 50, if not 60 percent of our sure, yeah. of our income. Okay, still and the balance from the uh, other it's services. From booze, from the alcohol that we sell. Yes. Um, and then uh, uh, venue hires, corporates. Yeah, like um, people hiring the space to yeah. do a film shoot in, for example. We have to take uh, a break now. We'll continue with more questions uh, for Hayley and Audi after the break. Do stay tuned. Welcome back. Now, our guests in studio today are Helia Evans and Orly Shapiro, co-founders of PopArt. This company is a performing arts center, and they offer theater space for networking purposes, as well as a platform for live productions, which include production services. Now, before the break, we were trying to get a sense of where their revenue was coming from, and we understand that uh, it's about a 60-40 uh, split in terms of 60% coming from uh, the, the, the door, splitting the door and the balance from other services including alcohol. 
Time for questions from you. Um, Haley and Oli, I wanted to understand because your business is made up of a few models, but mainly the ethos in terms of the industry and then obviously the services. So when you market, the, the you spoke a lot in initially about the brand. What, what, are you, what do you market? So when you put yourselves out there, what are you selling? The main thing we're selling is the theater and the ticket sales and an entertainment experience. Okay. So the other kind of services are very much, we do that underground. So it's not a public marketing kind okay. of thing. And then competitors? in terms of um, do are, are there other people in the industry who are doing the exact same thing um, what differentiates you from from those spaces I think there are other people doing the same thing but we don't see anyone in the in the live performance industry as competition because we're all trying to build this idea of people engaging with live performance so we don't see that as competition sure. I think what we see as competition is a television set mm. okay sure right. would you say that the, the uh, young designers emporium model where designers would bring their clothing ranges be approved and go on rack um, would be a similar model to what you provide. Is that a, is yeah, that a fair analogy that you provide effectively the, sp the space mm -hmm. and they provide the production yeah. and you help with the marketing? Sure. And, and sh is, that, is that a fair? Like yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. Good okay. interpretation, yeah. Now, um, how are you currently promoting these, sh these shows? Mostly online, so social media mm. are you and mailing. Are you trying to reach new audiences? You know, because this, you said it's entertainment. And entertainment is all about the ticket sales. Look at the, look at the, the recent, what is it, uh, McGregor and uh, Mayweather. Yeah. That's a kind of a pop art type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. In a way. And uh, sure, there's television and all those other kind of revenue streams going on. But the first thing in the entertainment business is about promotion. The ability to do sales and marketing. Mm. And either you have a narrow audience and you live with that or you can widen that audience. Well, I think so that's... What are, you, what are you doing to widen that audience? That's... Um, well, one of the biggest challenges is audience development and theatre is not mainstream on the best of days um, and that's why the partnerships and the collaborations that we engage with are so vitally important. Mm. And it's also content curation, so yeah. each production brings a new market to yeah. the space. How? Because the, the productions are engaging in a co-marketing experience and they have to engage with their, with their network as well. So like my mom and dad are done, like they're not coming to watch any more shows. Yeah, you know? so that's the thing, you're inviting just your same you, you're burning the same yeah. network of people, so right? So we've, we've built like, a, I mean, we've built a, a pretty good subscriber list over the past six years. Um, and so we had to we throw the net quite wide with that. But that's why it's so important that the, that the shows that are coming as well are also engaging with their networks as mm. well. And then the people that we collaborate further with, people such as um, William Kentridge, that we're collaborating um, the Center for the Let's Good Idea, you know, the, the audience that we access through that center will then also come and, and become part of pop art as well. And that's really one of the biggest ways of growing. Well, you mentioned the corporate market. I mean, what are you doing besides hiring the venue out for them? Mm. What else are you doing there? And also about the, the kiddies market. So on a corporate level, we're kind of engaging more with people in HR. Uh, that get the specific briefs of what needs to be tackled within different teams and developing specific packages within our skill set that work toward their brief. Uh, from a kid's perspective, it's something that we experimented with last year, but we can still do with developing it. Yeah. <laughs> what, the, what, what is your um, audience? How, I don't know. No, no, no. How full are you on average? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, uh, it's so depends. So I, Range? 45 percent, I would say. Average. 45 yeah. to 50. Yeah. So yeah. you can go as low as 10 percent, like five people in the room, and as uh, and, and 100 
100% full yeah. at times. Yep. Yeah. And, and have you learned how over time to determine that? Like what? what yeah, we know. We can predict pretty well. Yeah. What's yeah. that? What's the levers for the Just prediction? The it's who, who is on our stage and how many, how many times, times the show is run, yeah. uh, how well it's done at a festival. Okay. It, there's, there's certain markers and obviously within the artistic direction of the space, which is what I would do, we, we consider that, but also like I said in the pre-interview is there's something about the ethos that we still need to run certain kind of work. There's this whole thing, people are into experiences and all, yeah. and you said it, you said we're selling mm. an experience. Sure. So as part of widening the audience, people are always looking for different non-standard Joburg stuff to do. Mm. Have you thought about selling the experience, like we pick you up in the in the in you know the, the vehicles is from there it starts with the dinner with the meals with the whole thing and it's like thousand and a person for the night. I don't I don't think that's where Haley's and my interest really lies. Okay. <laughs> to be honest, I mean right. we've thought about it and we've spoken yeah. about it. Yeah, but it's not like about the commercial. Yeah, I, I would I would be very interested to collaborate with someone Somewhere, who is yeah. willing to do the legwork on that. Yeah, but we for us it's like diversifying okay. our, our uh, mm. diverging our, our efforts for something mm. that's not really. So I'm I'm doing the numbers here. So if you're doing three and a half to four thousand rand. A day. Um, on a very good every day. How many would you need to be profitable on a month? Our break even on audience would be about 35. 35, 35 people. 35 people per audience. Okay. Oh, per audience? But what we've also done is we've yeah. scaled up. Yeah. Okay. Three yeah, times if a week. Yeah, if we're looking at four shows a week, but we four have scaled up the amount of shows we're doing, mm -hmm. adding Monday and Tuesday programming doing kind of more regular programming as well which is kind of because of the space that's empty and i think we learned this on the last one is if the space that's empty the assets not being sweated yeah. and you're not yeah. you're paying the rent and you're not yeah. getting anything for it well we have to pay the rent so we have to <laughs> go to ad break now we'll be right back uh, after our, not after our summaries with our summaries Welcome back. Now, our guests today in studio are Haley Evans and Audley Shapiro, co-founders of PopArt. This company is a performing arts center and they offer theater space for networking purposes as well as a platform for live productions, which includes production services. Now, before the break, we were trying to get a sense of uh, the, the revenue model. In fact, Kumar and Manalisa and I were very much modeling th the business uh, before we could summarize. Time for summarize. We're going to start with you. Okay. Um, just one thing I want to say that I really like about you guys is that you're very honest about what it is that you want to do and what it is that you want to focus on. I think that's a very rare skill entrepreneurs hang <laughs> on to <laughs> um, in spite of what the wave is doing. So I, I really encourage you to keep that. I think there's two things from my side, and perhaps we didn't touch much on it. Um, you know, we were talking about the model, but I think from what I understand, your interest is to partner a lot more with corporates and getting corporates to be part of the ethos in a model that obviously is attractive to them. Mm -hmm. So I think when you look at the corporate language in terms of social investment and anything else that has got to do with inclusivity, there's opportunity there to say that that is the ethos of pop art and how can we, so you want the corporates to be buying the yeah. tickets mm -hmm. versus, um, you know, al along with, you know, 
know, obviously the entertainment perspective, which I think you understand and, and said very clearly, your competition is the TV screen. So the competition is the comfort of home and the not mm -hmm. traveling and so forth. And that then comes to my next point. I, th I think your core strength is content production um, and, co and understanding, um, you know, what is happening within the context of South Africa and where it needs to go and how the arts can support dialogue, mm -hmm. how the mm -hmm. arts can support lifestyle development and how that can speak to a corporate and how that can speak to a, a someone who is looking for that lifestyle and looking for that content in whatever they may be doing as a business owner and all sorts of things. So I think in your collaborations, there needs to be a trend forecasting, if I can call it that, as to what are people wanting to hear? Because they might not be getting it from TV or they might not getting it in the, in the, in the context that they'd like mm. to receive it in. Yeah. So I think there's an opportunity to look at those, how those merge with the corporate language of social investment and inclusivity. That would be my advice. Thank you. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. Thanks. Well, okay. Let's uh, contextualize this. The last time we said this wasn't a business. <laughs> it is a business. It's a social business. That's the context. Mm. That nevertheless, it is a business. But that context is important because it restricts or shapes what we're able to guide or mm -hmm. share with you and what you're willing to want to do or not. Mm -hmm. that, so that context is important for you and perhaps the audience to understand. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I saw, I felt some, or, or, or thought there was some resistance when, I, when we were trying to shape it along the more commercial lines, mm -hmm. right? And I get that because you're worried that if it's too commercialized, the purest aspects of why you're doing it is lost. I love uh, buying art, the painted art, and, and sometimes I get frustrated when it's too commercialized mm -hmm. in what I'm doing. So I, I, wearing that other hat, I get that. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel at a loss in terms, because my normal tool sets are, <laughs> you know, the commercial <laughs> stuff and all those kind of things. I have to put that away. You see, this is what happens when you get flu. You get vulnerable. Yeah, it's okay. I'm so in touch with my, with my estrogen. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Maybe just, you know, find a patron that is, uh, can be committed, a corporate or personal patron that can be committed to the purest content of what you're trying to do, identify with that and give you a three-year commitment that buys into your philosophy of that. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to taint it with too much of commercialization. Right. That's what I'm able to offer. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to be um, controversial now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to disagree for the first time with Mona Lisa on the whole show. I've never disagreed with her. Okay. <laughs> disagree with her. I think, I think you need to frame this differently. And part of it is, is to understand the borders of your idealism and, and, and the nuance of where they, you know, because it's not really a line. It's, it's a bumpy thing that mm -hmm. ends, you know, and it's, it's pragmatic. It has to be pragmatic in a sense, right? So my view is that you're not a production company, is that you should be a marketing company, mm. that you should see yourself <laughs> as a marketing company. What we do, coming to my original summary of what I thought you might be, is that you, you market your space and get audiences, and you become super good at that and find the right people to do that. Your production skills, et cetera, should be de facto like breathing. You're good at that. Mm -hmm. You love doing that, that's what you do. But in order for that to survive, you have to become the best at marketing that space. And in all ways possible, to all types of markets, for all types of reasons. And that will then drive you to the next point, which is sales. 
is that once you learn how to market properly, you have to learn how to sell. Now, RT people, sales, like two different sides <laughs> of, of the world, right? Being idealistic, yeah. Yeah. Not the same right. one. So, no, 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 no. But you can't sell no. idealism? You, you, you know, you <laughs> can, but it doesn't have to be. But if you're creating a product, which I think you know how to do and you're doing very well, then it's about getting somebody else to go and sell. And I would be loath to say that because it should be you. But, but I'm sort of also trying to be pragmatic here, to go and sell that product to the corporates and say, that the corporates start opening and being part of that market that 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 uh, uh, in, in that database is is broader in, and you understand it better in terms of this corporate is having th these type of issues. This production talks directly to that problem. It like is a great metaphor for what they're going through. So that would be a yeah. great thing to sell. Sure. And you learn how to sell the the product, which is the production itself into the right market with the right problems where it, it manifests as a met metaphor, not a production for the, for the corporate. So, uh, I mean, we'd, we, we've got very little time, but the, so it's marketing and then moving into, into sales. I would not expand. I would get to, I would think about expanding when you get to like 50 on average when there are people who are queuing to get inside. When you learn how to do that, mm -hmm. then it's time to expand. Mm -hmm. But right now, sitting at where your average is and being borderline, it's not the right time to expand. It's going to defocus you, it's going to stress you out, and you're going to hate it, you know, and you're going to lose your idealism now because now you are going to overextend yourself. Yeah, cool. So uh, you're going to watch this one now, and hopefully you have the same kind of reaction <laughs> in a couple of years' time. After the break, I'm joined by Dean Carlson, CEO of Brain Farm, a South African event agency and speaker bureau. His uh, entrepreneurial journey took him from owning a print shop to what, is to what it currently offers, namely to secure high-profile, and I mean very high-profile speakers for high-profile branded events. We'll be right back. This is the Big Small Business Show. Welcome back. In our slot called Psyche of Success today, I'm joined by Dean Carlson. He is CEO of Brain Farm, a South African event agency and speaker bureau. Now, Dean started his entrepreneurial career straight after matric with a small printing venture and systematically built it up over the years to where it is today, namely organizing a high-profile brand. And when I say high-profile, I mean like super high profile branded events by securing super high profile uh, speakers for those events. Welcome Dean. Thank you for the opportunity. And wow. you're the guy in the background because you're not a high profile guy, you're the guy who's behind all the high profile sure. people. people. People only know about me when something goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say where it started with, in the intro we, we, we spoke about how it started. So take, take us on your, your journey as an entrepreneur. Okay, so I started my first business directly out of school. Um, it was uh, kind of, I went through school not focusing on, on academics too much, then got to the end and didn't really know what to do next. And my father came up with the idea, he said to me, why don't you start, your, why don't you start a business? And I asked him what that would involve. And um, I then ended up starting a, a small printer broking business where I would, like I didn't own anything, I didn't own any printing equipment, but I would go and get orders from clients and then take them to, to be printed and then go and deliver it and add a little markup. 
and um, having no capital to 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 didn't I didn't have any capital to invest in that business, so it, it was short lived. I mean, like I think we had, I had at that stage I had two uh, clients, two fairly big clients. Um, the one went out of business, and the second one um, couldn't pay me for order that they placed, and that forced me to 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 shut my doors. I then went and studied computer programming and worked as a waiter to pay for my studies. And um, what happened over that period was something that changed the direction of my life because I was a, a friend of mine's father was a, a, is a rocket scientist at Wits University and he was a big fan of this Canadian personal development speaker, a guy by the name of John Keogh. And he told me about John and I kind of like I went to one of John's talks. I couldn't afford to go to his actual program, but I l remember sitting there thinking that if there's any truth in what this guy was saying, that I could, couldn't think of any better way than sp of spending my time than learning what this guy was actually, what, what he was talking about. And I went and read all of John's books and I, I was practicing his exercises on a daily basis. And what happened was I, I, I got a job in a restaurant in Rosebank and within my first two weeks there, uh, one night I was busy setting up in the front of the restaurant and um, it was in winter and I heard the door opening and as I, as I turned around, I saw this old man like, grabbing his hands from the cold and when, I, when, when, he, when he looked up, I recognized him, it was John Keel, he was my, he was my favorite author. Mm -hmm. and. Um, it ended up he bought a block, a house a block away from there and he would come there like three, four times a week with his wife, Sylvia. And I was like, every time he would come and I would give all my other tables away and just focus on him to get to spend as much time with him as possible. And the one day he, um, I was inviting him to lunch and he was busy declining. But his wife, Sylvia, took pity on me and she went like, ah, oh, John, you got to eat. And John went, okay, it's fine, let's do lunch. And we went for tea and in that conversation, I had all these questions that I wanted to ask him. And the first question was, John, did you always know you're gonna be this successful? And he looked me square in the eyes and he went to me, Dean, don't let society fuck with you. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Like firstly, secondly, I had no idea he was capable of swearing because I had this guy on this pedestal. Mm -hmm. So he messed with my head completely. And I said to him like, please explain to me what you mean. He said to me, as long as you pursue society's definition of success, you'll never be successful. The moment you decide what success is and you start pursuing that, once you achieve that, then you're successful. And that made me change direction completely. I mean, like a week later, I wasn't studying computer programming anymore because that was society's definition of success. That wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with people. I wanted to like be in the personal development industry. I went and I got a job with a company that focused on that. I was just literally, they didn't pay me a salary. They just said, you can come and sell for us. Whatever commission you make, you get to keep. There's no, no perks. You're not employed by us. You do what you do. And I started doing that. And in the first month, I made more than I probably would have made in 10 years of waitering. Um, and it was based on my enthusiasm. And I realized that be, by, by doing what I'm passionate about, it helps me to kind of like move things forward in a much more meaningful way and a much more, more um, way that, that, that requires much less effort because you're driven by your passion. I then started promoting, uh, taking people to the UK to go and attend Tony Robbins events there. Um, I didn't make any money out of this. I literally just did it so that I could afford to go to go and attend these workshops myself. And then I, I was invited to a, an event where uh, Richard Branson was part of the panel. And I went up to the, uh, uh, well, he was actually beamed in by a satellite. He wasn't in the room, but on the live panel, there was a group of people who I had spent some time with, guys like um, Herman Mashaba and Brian Joffe and all these guys. And I went to say hi to, to them. 
And then on the way out, I slapped the guy who, who, was, who seemed to be the organizer on the shoulder and congratulated him and said to him, listen, well done, man, fantastic event. And I said, by the way, I've got an idea that'll work really well in your platform. Knowing that Tony Robbins had produced this content to go out uh, with United Artists, United Artists Theatres in the US and just wanted to plug that in. And this, this company was Prime Media and they said, it's fine, let's, let's, try, and get the, let's try and get the process going. So I started like phoning on, on my pay-as-you-go account, phoning, phoning the guys in the US trying to get this set up. And then uh, the guys from Prime Media called me in and said, guys, listen, Dean, um, we need you to hold back. Our CEO at that stage, the CEO at that stage had pursued the same, like had gone on the same journey and he wanted to continue that journey. So I cut back and they said to me, by the way, would you like to come and join us in creating these events? And then we started doing these really exciting events at that stage when Lance Armstrong was still a year. We would do the launch for Unite for Health with Lance Armstrong. We did events with Jack Walsh and um, Robert Kiyosaki. Correct. So we had like we did all these phenomenal events. And because of my background, I kept on trying to convince these guys to go into the live event space. And they said, listen, that's not what we're doing. We're focusing on doing these simulcast events. Let's, fo let's focus on our model. And when I joined Prime Media Unlimited, I think I was employee number eight. And they didn't have any HR procedures. So when I, when I walked in, by the time, like, uh, like two years later or three years later, I walked in, they had the stack of documents on my desk. And these were all my restraints and everything. And I had this idea for going on my own for such a long time. And when I saw these documents, I realized I couldn't, like this was my cue, I had to leave because yeah. I couldn't sign a restraint. It would, yeah. I would never be able to pursue my dreams. Yeah. So I resigned and then I started um, the Discovery Invest Leadership Summit where we had the likes of Richard Branson, Malcolm Gladwell, Rudy Giuliani, Al Gore, um, Nassim Taleb, your, yeah. your guru, um, yeah. and a whole bunch of others. So, and, and yeah, so that's really, I mean, like, yeah, that's really, that's, that's been my journey uh, to, uh, to, to up until like a couple of months ago. Look, uh, uh, you're, uh, we, 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 we haven't even gone halfway. I want to, first of all, before we end this, I want to ask you one more two more questions, yes. but I want to invite you back for part two of this. Thank you. Because uh, I, I think uh, there's a lot of lessons being exposed to all these people. Thank you. You know, so, so you, you're with, with all these, you're the organizer in the background, but you're sitting and learning from all these guys all the time. You have a yes. deep thirst for knowledge. Yes. If I asked you, um, the, the ones, uh, uh, other than Kyo, the, the, the ones that had the most effect on your life, yes. who would they be? So there's a couple. I think um, first and foremost, foremost would be Tony Robbins. Mm. Uh, he had a massive impact on my life. And it's just like, I think it, he, he, he got me to shift from, from thinking and reading and filling my head with knowledge to, to taking action. I mean, like, because you, you kind of like, he got me to stop making excuses. Mm. Because I, was, I can remember days where I didn't grow up having um, lots of money. I mean, like, I kind of like, I, I'm from like, I didn't know that I was like, I didn't have a lot of money. I was like the same as all the kids around me. But I can remember like deciding that, like going through Tony's stuff and deciding I need to start f doing something physical. I need to start exercising. But I didn't have shoes to do that with. I had like these like, broken like terrible broken shoes but and they weren't actually proper they weren't proper to to start running and i realized that i can't keep making these excuses so i started running using those shoes and like using the, the the crappy shoes and that's kind of like the thing that shifted my thinking to to from from thinking that um that you're gonna think you're gonna like think your way out of where you are because it's never gonna happen you have to climb in and get involved and and and, and do stuff and that's kind of where the shift came and that's why why tony was such a such a big influence on my life um, 
We're going to have to pick up the, the balance in uh, next week's show. Cool. Um, this is a fascinating, I think, in not just your story, but the, the story about how other champions in, in society and in, yeah. in, in business and different facets of, of, of life have actually affected you. Thank you. So, uh, Dean, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure having you on, on the show. Um, please come back next week for part two of, of your journey um, you. and to see where you've landed up uh, today. Thank you so much, a lot. Up next, I'm joined by Julius Mojapello from SICA, and our topic of discussion is tender applications, whether it is in the public or private sector. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Big Small Business Show. As you may have noticed, we've always subtly or openly tried to discourage you to take the tender route for various reasons. However, we're also aware that some of our viewers really want to go this way or have no option to go this way. So we're going to empower you today to be the best that you can be on the next application. To give you all the basics, I'm now joined by Julius Mojapello, Senior Executive of Public Sector at SICA. Welcome, Julius. Thank you. Okay, so, so we've got different types of tenders. We've got the corporate tender, we've got the, the government tender. What's the difference between the two? In the main, there isn't really much differences. The difference really comes in the regulation. So the government tenders are more regulated in that the process is determined by law that they have to follow, whereas the private sector one is usually determined by the company's policy and given their circumstances and what objectives they want to achieve. You know, often you get people who, um, who are tendering um, that have got big businesses and they've got some are like almost startups that are tendering. Do you, um, give, do you suggest that you should be at a certain stage or a certain size of business mm -hmm. before you get into the tender space? There is no size requirements in terms of getting into the public procurement system. So it's just really about whether you can do the job or not, because some of the tenders are very small. So mm. it might be delivering bread to a municipality or yes. toiletries, whereas others could be building bridge, you know, for a community. So the difference then determines the size. But otherwise, there is no size requirement for the government tender system. And, and many of the tenders allow the entrepreneur to create a consortium or your know, partnership or, or even subcontracting environment. Um, in what circumstances do you recommend this and, and not recommend it? Um, and, and what would be the, the benefits of, of partnering? Partnering is an option, uh, specifically for startups and small businesses, because they enter into areas where they might not have experience or they might have not the financial mass up to pull through a big project. So partnering is a big option for startups to gain experience while they are partnering with an established player that can teach them the ropes as they go so that one day they can have their own CV. So partnering is really something big for startups. Yeah. It, when partnerships go, go wrong, I mean, are they, I mean, you both, um, you both on the hook 
um, and and there's there's a partnership where they, they you rely on their service they rely perhaps on your service but they might be messing up and now your reputation is at stake how would you extricate or how would you save your reputation with a client in that instance yeah that that's a big challenge i mean that happens either it's financial services delivering goods or services it happens all the time especially for the big player because the big player is the one that eventually takes the responsibility for delivery to the client. Yes. So the small players have a role to play in that they need to create an image for themselves and it's important that they deliver. But tight contracting needs to be applied for the big players to ensure that delivery is made by the small players because you want to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks. But also it's important to get the client involved in understanding what kind of arrangement you're having with the small player mm. so that they understand the risk you are taking in the process of developing the small businesses. So it is a partnership between you and the client to develop the SMME, not just your responsibility as the big player. You know, I see a lot of um, small businesses where they <laughs> win tenders and in fact it, it destroys them because they either, either have misunderstood the, um, the tender and, and have quoted incorrectly and have not costed correctly. I mean, do, do you see this, that, you know, that the tenders, if you don't cost correctly, you know, you might win it, but it might be the demise of you as a, as a small business. It could. I think any uncalculated expansion, whether it's through tendering or getting into a new market, will always have risks. The key is SMEs should avoid tendering on things they've never done on their own. Yes. So a lot of tenderpreneurs, the big term that we have, is yes. where people start delivering something they've never done on their own on a big scale with government. So it's advisable that SMEs go to government with something they've piloted on their own. When government looks at your tender document, what are the, the things that they're looking for? PE um, status is yes. obviously will be number one, yeah. or one of the elements, price, what else? There are three main issues. The first one is your ability to deliver. Yes. So one is about experience, you know, trading licenses. There are certain products and services you can only deliver if you have a certain license. Construction <laughs> is one of them, food and beverages is one of them, things like tourism. So those are the things that we look at, can you deliver? And then beyond that, the competitiveness of your price. Mm. So what kind of pricing do you have compared to the market? Other bidders as well on the line? And like you mentioned, BEE becomes important because in South Africa, we still have the triple challenge of unemployment, poverty, and inequality. So BEE allows government to partner with entities that show commitment mm. to that struggle. So that just becomes a big issue. So if you look at currently with the new regulations for procurement in government, the BEE status counts for about 20% of the mm. final determination for tenders that are below 50 million. 50 million is big for an SME, and yeah. beyond that, they count about 10%. So BEE is very, very important in this space. You know, what, what are the biggest mistakes that you see um, these, these small businesses make? You, you know, other we spoke about costing, uh, but what, what are the other classic things we need to look out for as small businesses when we are filling out mm -hmm. these forms? One thing is, don't overstate your ability to deliver. Because I think, you know, when you're looking for work, you want to look like you can deliver. And then sometimes 
SMMEs underestimate the project management capability that is required to deliver. Yeah. Even if you know what the product and service is, bringing together the role players, getting the equipment, getting the right partners on board, getting the right staff on board, those are things that are not directly listed on the tender document, mm. but they become key in being able to meet the requirements of the tender document. And it goes back to my discussion around don't start something you haven't done before with government mm. because you don't know what it takes to deliver it. You might win the tender, like you said, but it becomes to your detriment because somebody else that has done this has lost the tender and you've got it, but you're not going to be able to deliver on it. Last question for me is around uh, where do I find these tenders? You know, is, is, uh, is there a, a tender board? Is there, do I have to go and register on various places? Where do I find them? There's a lot of work being done by the Treasury to centralize places where you can get the tenders. But currently, we still have a scattered landscape in terms of where tenders are found. The key one is the central supplier database where one needs to register on. And there's an e-tender portal where you can actually view all the tenders that are available from government. Secondly, there's also newspapers. A lot of tenders are still advertising the traditional newspapers that you can read. But there's also the websites of the organs of state, like municipalities, departments, still have tender portals mm. that you can go through. Recently, a lot of people are using services of tender service providers that give them notification about new tenders when they come up because you can only imagine it can be very difficult to go to every website every mm. day to find out which tenders are new so there are services that are available for for assistance with that we're gonna have to leave it there thank you so much for being on the show and uh, really cool that you got such <laughs> wonderful so even those are even nicer <laughs> than mine <laughs> no but thank you very much thanks for the invite yeah great well, it's time for my impressions for today. Uh, and today I want to take uh, my impressions from the panel interview with Haley and Orny. Um, and I want to talk about something that's, uh, uh, I think, very important to, to get up front, especially if you're one of the people watching today who are thinking about starting a business or you're somebody who's battling to make money all, all the time. And often uh, when I sit down with these entrepreneurs, and go through the business model, I realize the business model is broken. It can never make money. And, and I, I just want to maybe spend a few minutes today talking about what I mean by that. Because the other day I was talking about, about this to somebody and uh, they said, I don't understand what you mean. So here's what I mean. So here's my example. Let's say you run a restaurant, right? And it just, just, it's just a hypothetical restaurant that there are only 10 tables in this restaurant. And let's say, each table has got four chairs, so now there are only 40 seats available. And uh, let's say on average you have two seatings a day, so no, that's not on average, you have two seatings a day, and you have, uh, you, uh, the average person spends 180 Rand on a meal. Now in the food industry, uh, that you would have a 30% food cost, that means you'd have 120 Rand of GP, okay, and you operate seven days a week. Um, you know, 365. So let's say that's the maximum you're working every single day. And yeah, that, that's, that's, the, that's the setup. So 10, ten uh, tables, four chairs, seven days a week, two seatings, 180 Rand average. Right, so that's the, the model. Now that is at full capacity. Now if you add those up, and you're going to have to trust my numbers on this, I've done this before, 120 times 4 times 2 times 30 is 28,800 Rand. That's your GP. That's how, how much uh, gross profit you make in that business if you, do, if you run every day. 
But then, of course, you've got a whole bunch of uh, overheads. And you've got, let's say, you, in order to run that, you need at least two waiters. At, at, at le uh, and let's say you pay them 4,000 Rand each a month, uh, plus their tips, so the, the, the 4,000. So that's 8,000. And then you have chef, and let's say your chef, you know, making all these salaries up, is at 8,000 Rand a month. And then you have rent at 10,000 Rand a month. So we, so far, we're on 20. Uh, 6,000 Rand, and then you have electricity at 3,000 Rand, and now we're on 29,000, and you need gas to, to cook with, and that's another 3,000 Rand a month, and that's 32,000, and you need to you know, clean the, the tablecloths, etc., and it's of course uh, your laundry is another 3,000 Rand, and now you have 35,000 Rand, and you can see where I'm going. So you, at maximum, you can make 28,800 Rand. If every single seat in every single sitting was being used at the average meal per, per you can you can never make money and even if you increase the the food uh, the average food from two to a bill to from 200 rand per person to 180 to 250 rand you're still not going to make money the model is broken many businesses that come to me have got a broken model and it doesn't matter what you do in that business the business won't work and so you have to break that model and reset a new model. So think about your business and ask yourself the, the question, have, have you got a broken model? Well, that's it for my impressions for today. Remember, this is your show, and we want to hear about uh, your business. So if you are um, an entrepreneur who, who needs some assistance uh, and wants to come on the panel, do email us on bigsmall at bdtv.co.za or interact with us on Twitter at bsbs underscore bdtv. It's goodbye from me, and remember, if you think it, write it down and make it a reality. Hello, and welcome to the Big Small Show. Big Small Show. See, even I get it wrong. That was for Samay. You can use that for Samay. Okay. The courage to grow is business. The Big Small Business Show made possible by MTN Business, a new world of business. And by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Lead your industry with a responsible partner. Partner with the CASA today.